Hello and welcome to the Pinch of Magic podcast with me, Rebecca Anuwin. Well, I am very excited today to have Lucy Pierce join us, the powerhouse, the creative, the artist behind Womancraft Publishing. Now, you probably know her from books like Creatrix and Burning Woman. I love that one. Um, but we are here today to talk about her latest upcoming book which is going to be released in November um the kitchen witch companion rituals uh, sorry recipes rituals and reflections and we're going to have a little bit of a sneak peek maybe of an upcoming book called crow moon so lucy welcome to the podcast thank you so much lovely to be here yeah i'm very excited because, um like i said i we've actually had quite a few of your authors on mm, i the know podcast. i'm <laughs> <about> sharing <laughs> sharing all their stories and I'm like and now we have the woman whose vision this was mm-hmm. so um what I, you've obviously written and in the beginning of the kitchen which you share that actually you want to be a food writer at the very mm-hmm. beginning of your like when seven year old when you were seven or like mm-hmm. very early wasn't it and it's like you were in Ireland and you wanted to be a cookery writer but actually you already had a lot of cookery writers thank goodness um in your area and so that that moved you down a different path so you obviously knew you wanted to write from a very young age. Where did that desire for writing and for food and for cookery, where did that all start for you? I wrote a book a year from probably the age of seven, um, which sounds insane, but each time it's pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> were school projects, which, you know, the other kids would do two or three pages and I would do 90 pages. Um and so I won every award going for writing in, at school and projects at school because I put my heart and soul into each one. I've always loved learning, loved researching things. Um, and each book would be a different genre. It would be whatever I was into. So like there was a, a terrible um, knockoff of, um, oh, come on, Lucy, the brain. Um, the Snapper. And um, the oh, what's his name? Irish author, Roddy Doyle. Terrible, terrible Roddy Doyle um, esque thing in my teens. There was an Osborne esque um, uh, puzzle book, which I gave to my um, stepmother, and she re gifted to me um, about three or four years ago. And it was just really special because um, they're on the front cover in the Osborne books, they teach you about how to. Um, make up a kind of a joke name so you know one that has kind of a double meaning yeah. so the joke name I made up for myself was Sheila Peer and I just you know when I saw that and we were at that point you know kind of six years into Womancraft I was like wow even then even when I was nine I had this thing coming through me that I was listening to. And then on the next page, on the inside page, it said, um, this book is only for work- girls and women, no men allowed. And so even then that I had the seeds of what would be my books and womancraft in me and this deep drive to to create them and express them, um, not only words, but images too. And so it was there and it was it was necessary i mean in creatrix i talk about this kind of urge to create or die and very mm. much how i experience my creativity it's like if i push it down in myself i get really sick um i get really miserable 
Um, and if I say yes to it, it's like this unstoppable force of energy that comes mm. out of me. And often it can make me feel really uncomfortable when I see what's come out and I'm like, oh, I can't say that and I can't do that. I can't put that into the world. I, I you know, I self-censor because I'm like, oh, that doesn't feel safe. But this thing, whatever this is, needs to come out through me. And so my work has been learning to say yes to that and then learning to make myself feel comfortable and safe enough in the world to be able to share it more and more widely. But in all of that is as an ongoing process. So Womancraft started because I put my first book out around um, publishers whilst I was getting the rejections, which we all do for our books. Um, I self-published three books and I loved self-publishing. I'd been an editor at a magazine for a few years and I kind of felt like, hang on a second, I'm making the money from these books. They're selling. Um, I can do this. And then when I actually got the book published, The Rainbow Way, by a publisher, the experience wasn't what I was wanting. So I was like, hang mm. on, I can do this. I can use my skills to help other women do this. And I can put out the sort of books that I want to see in the world without needing to bend and shape them to somebody else's rules because their vision isn't my vision for my books and the sort of books I want to see. So let's do this. So I kind of just jumped in two feet in, in a kind of a, this is what needs to be done. Um, and it's been incredible. We're 10 years um, in 2024. So yeah. Wow. We published about 50 books. 50 and, um, 50 yeah and um I've got 12 books out now so <laughs> yay amazing I, I loved what you were saying then about your own creativity mm. like if you ignore your creativity it you know it it's like part of you is dying and I was having the same conversation with a friend of my yesterday who will remain nameless but she'll know exactly who I'm talking about mm. it's that she's an incredibly creative person mm. and yet often she will you know sideline it ignore it and what happens then is it kind of I call it like squirting out the sides and it becomes really destructive you know that that made (laughs) that major creative energy is like being squashed from the top so it pops out the side and Mm. it shows up as like creating drama or being destructive it's Mm. like how did you learn to lean into your creativity because it can be you know when we know that we're here especially for creations that are we know that are to be seen in the world. That's mm. quite a big mantle to hold, isn't it? Rather than just going, oh, I'm just going to create a cushion for my front room. And not that that's, you know, any less important. That's obviously equally as important. But like the bigger you know you have the ability to be, like the more destructive it, that same power has the same like weight to destroy. So how did you manage to lean into your creativity and keep leaning in, even though you are no, you know that you are touching and working with topics and archetypes that can be quite challenging for society? Mm. It's a really good question. Um, the honest answer is it is a constant work in progress. Like, mm. Each each step on the journey is a step on the journey of stepping one step further outside of my comfort zone. And each book that I put out requires another bit of that journey in myself, giving voice to the bits that I haven't been able to share with anybody, let alone myself, and putting them into visible form um, is is a huge act of 
courage sometimes mm. it can feel like an act of self-harm because it feels so dangerous and so scary just to literally have those thoughts those words on paper just feels like almost a death sentence to myself and that sounds very dramatic but that is how it feels um burning woman was was really a kind of a it blew out a lot of gas- gaskets for me just uh that the degree of danger that I felt in writing and giving voice to that powerful feminine archetype and then putting it out in the world felt like that again. So what I say is that you have to learn to create safe space around you in order to be able to create. So that needs to be a safe place because mm. you need to get out of your comfort zone because you can't create meaningful stuff within your comfort zone because your comfort zone is the familiar uh so you need to push your own boundaries into new uncharted territories in the outside world or your inner world or both um and then the sharing also has to be done safely at first so um it's just a matter of learning to do that and holding yourself with great care whilst you do rather than when I say it can be a self of a form of of self-harm, we learn to um force ourselves in patriarchy. We learn to be forced by others. Like it's a rape culture that we inhabit in our own bodies. And so we need to get out of the habit of forcing ourselves as women in everything that we do and learn how to make places that are unknown or feel scary, safe enough for us to enter with our consent and permission. Mm. And so it's that constant stopping and checking with myself. How am I doing at this moment? Do I need to back off? Do I need to take care of myself? Do I need to make things safer so that I can continue rather than ignoring all the danger signals in my body mind, pushing myself harder and harder, and then burning out and breaking down because I can't function because I feel so unsafe that my nervous system is fried. Yes to so many things that you just said then. <laughs> it's, it's, it's taken me off on two tangents and it's interesting about how you share about the danger of writing. And I think, I mean, you're doing that on a, on a global stage and you know that when you put a book out in the world, it's going to be read by, you know, like hundreds of thousands, millions, I, I don't know, but, you know, a huge amount of people and yeah. and growing. We'll, we'll head to millions. We'll, we'll hold that vision. <laughs> we're, we're for the magic, spreading that magic around the world. But um, I always remember, it's like I've been in, I don't know what you would call it, like the self-help kind of world for, for many, many decades. And journaling has always been an important part of that. It's like, oh, you should journal this, that and the other. And I always remember whenever that kind of a teacher would tell me to journal or a you know a course would tell me to journal I'd be like oh yeah that's lovely I'll just journal in my head and I couldn't I couldn't write put pen to paper mm-hmm. and I always remember I used to call it the j word I was like oh god the j word and it was it took me a long time like I'm a very slow learner clearly to realize that actually I didn't feel safe to write down how I felt because actually that would mean admitting it and it meant it could be found by someone else yeah and so I I couldn't even journal you know and that's there's you writing about these bold archetypes and now I'm I always knew journaling was important but it was about me allowing myself to become vulnerable with myself to admit how I was feeling and actually share that 
with myself. And that was an act of terror for myself for myself. Um, okay, so that's the first half of writing a book. That that terror is what yeah. I do each time I write a book. <laughs> it is, it's it's like a real oh you know, obviously I write journals all the time now and I have no issue with that, but it's like people feel that I think I think people can relate to like your fear about sharing it with the world even in themselves mm-hmm. you know when you're like they can't even admit to themselves what it is <clears throat> they really want in the world and the other thing that you touched on there which I think is really important is I always look at it as like we've been taught to fear the darkness but actually the darkness is where our magic is and I think that's what you were touching on then yeah. and it's like we've been our power our magic you know our intuition all of that is in that place of darkness in our you know inner cauldrons whatever you want to call it and it's that we've been taught to fear that and dismiss it and because we can't dissect it and put it under a microscope and prove it it's like oh it doesn't matter but actually that's where our power is and when that's dismissed I think that's very much the energy of the burning woman archetype isn't it it's like that's what we're calling back yeah, everything that is in the darkness, which the feminine has been associated with darkness since forever. Why? Because it is something that the light has not been shone on. The light being God, masculine, the male gaze, you know, has not understood what the feminine is. It's tried to shape it and abuse it and cut its edges off and make it what it wants to be. But the patriarchy does not get the feminine, is just scared of the feminine, and so has clothed it in darkness. And in our culture, darkness equals bad. Um, and the same with language. Like, when when I write, I have to get past the stories that I've always told about myself, that I've always known to be true about myself, that I've told about my culture, that I've heard about my culture, and get into hang on what is true for me. Mm. What what have I not been seeing? What has not been given voice? What lies beneath? What is nameless and yet that I experience all the time? And so giving voice, breaking silence is perhaps the biggest I guess gift I bring to the world is is in giving words to things then things can be spoken things can be named things can be discussed things can be transformed things can be changed things can be recognized in other people and language does that breaking silence yeah that's that's the key isn't it because like I say when we when we can name it other people can go oh my god I understand that now it's like how many times have people read your books or told you like oh my god you've given words to what I was feeling but I didn't have the context the framework the even the understanding of what happened and then you hear something read something share a story and it's just like there it is and And that's the gift of my books Mm -hmm. and it's what makes people who kind of normcore people freaked out about my books because they're too weird they're too they're too raw they're too unsafe they're talking about weird stuff that I don't want to think about or I haven't thought about before or feelings that I'm not comfortable with and and she's writing about this like Mm. what's that and so there's that's what makes sharing my books tricky because I have to share them with people who are going to get them who are going to feel seen and held by them rather than the people who are going to throw shame back at me 
for naming and speaking stuff that they don't want named and spoken or doing it in ways that they don't want doing it. So I keep my, like, my books could be bigger. Womancraft could be bigger. But if we were, we would be under an awful lot more attack, I feel. And so the thing for me is widening circles constantly so that we have circles of safety, sisterhood and support. Mm. Get our work, get what we're doing, don't need to come back throwing shame in our faces for what we're doing, and then spread it within their circles. And so the circles widen and widen on and on. But they are circles of support, circles of safety. And I think that's really important for for everyone to hear, because we do live in a world where it's like, bigger, bolder, best. And it's like, let's get build all of that, hype ourselves up and take that big leap you know, quit that thing, change everything in our life. And sometimes that's appropriate. But for most people, all that happens is they do that thing, then they crash and then they kind of go backwards and then it takes them ages to build themselves up. Whereas actually, if we just gently, 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 it's like, why I'm such a fan of like regular daily habits, not big life-changing things, but just building up that support, that internal resilience within ourselves, that energetic support the magical support the physical support just like you say just pushing gently pushing that circle wider and wider I think that's far more sustainable for many people but it doesn't look very sexy well I mean we're taught (laughs) but that's what I mean it's like oh the world yes we're taught that you have to be the best in the world the biggest Mm. world well says who like most of us literally cannot sustain that in our physical body minds we can't do that we can't do that if we want to keep the people in our lives who we love, if we want to have time with our children, time with our partners, time with our friends, it's not doable because the Mm. people who do that are off on tour all the time. They're seeing strangers all the time. Yeah, you get to be on a stage to 100,000, but you don't have a life behind that. And there's an awful lot you have to surrender or not value in order to be the big thing that everybody wants you to be. And my journey has very much been I need to get my work out there in order to earn a living for our family. I want to get it out there to the people that it helps. But I'm a person with my life and I value that very dearly. And that is just as equal to me. I need both. I'm not going to sacrifice one for the other. I'm not going to sacrifice family for money. I'm not going to sacrifice family for fame. That's not on the table for me. It's interesting because I do a lot of business coaching. And one of the first things I ask someone in business is, what does success look like for you? Mm. And they've often never even asked that. They're like, oh, it means getting bigger and bigger and bigger and growing and growing. And I'm like, yeah, but do you want that? Do you want to manage the systems that hold that in place? If you do, and that lights you up, brilliant, knock your socks off. But if you've never thought about it, please don't be judging yourself against you know, like you say, you use the word fame, you know, but don't be judging yourself about wanting something different because success, you know, or magic or lifestyles or desires, they are so personal to us. And yet in our society, it's like, compare, compare, compare. Let me sell you something else so you can be bigger, bolder, better. And it's like, yeah, but do you want to be bigger, bolder, better? It's like, what is it for you? And I think the conversations you have are very much about bringing people back to themselves. You know, the authors yeah. that you've shared, it's all so about finding. Started, sorry. When I started out, I very much did look at what will success look like for me. Mm. Ralph, well, it's attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson. He was a transcendental writer and thinker, um, 1800s U S who I discovered in, um, 
university and really chimed with his stuff. He's got a real spiritual element to his writing. And his definition of success, I printed it out um, and I put it up on my um, my pin board behind my computer. And I referred to that for the first 10 years plus of my career until it was kind of embodied in me. So I, I want to read it so that I get it mm, right. Please. This is, this is his definition of success. To laugh often and much. To win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to appreciate beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a little better, whether by a healthy child or a garden patch, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. That is my definition of success. Mm, I love that. And I love the little bit about, was it to earn the respect of children? Um, the affection of the children. affection of children. Yeah, because they're kind of like animals, aren't they? They know. <laughs> they know that you got you can't yeah. be faking with a child. Um, that. That's beautiful. There's, there's another guy who was a, a kind of permaculture guy, and he said, um, "I can only do what one can do, but what one can do, I will do." Mm. Um, and and that's a very good grounding one because. It's not saying I can change the world. I can do everything. That's, that's the ego talking. That's what we're told to believe. No, but, but what I can do is powerful and I will do that. But not everything lies on my shoulders. I'm not that important. And I think that's really important when we look at today's society, when we can be, we can, you know, to be honest, we can look around the world and be overwhelmed by all of the things that we might want to contribute to or change. But when you actually go, okay, I can't do everything but I can do my piece. I can look after my family, my community, my you know, my garden, so to speak, my metaphorical garden. And it's like, that's, that's how I believe will change the world. It's like when everyone can show up fully in themselves and, and express themselves in the way that, I don't know whether you believe it's like you're born to express yourself in that way, but I feel that's, that's a really powerful thing. It's like, that's how we change the dynamics of the world. Is this, when we can it, hold our power. This is chiming so much with the end of Burning Woman. Can I read that? Just mm. That's very much where we're at. We often fear that the revolution needed is too big for what any of us can give. Too much change is required inside, outside, and we are too small. But all that is required is that you step into the truth of your life and mm. speak it, write it, paint it, dance it that you shine your light on your truth for the world to see. And as hundreds, then thousands, then millions do this, each sparking the courage of yet more, suddenly we have a light, a world alight with truth. We are shifting ourselves. We are shifting the world, dancing her into a new orbit. We are filling in the space where our voices were silenced, filling in the blanks where our images have been lacking. We are weaving her story into reality, unweaving the limiting histories, creating our story, reaching beyond religion and patriarchy and capitalism and so-called democracy into new ways of being and seeing. We are the bridges between worlds. We are the ones we have been waiting for. Arise, burning woman. Arise, burning women. Um, I love that. Living our truth, sharing our truth. That's so important. And 
I think, <laughs> interestingly, that brings us to your next book, Kitchen, The Kitchen Witch. Because sometimes you can you can hear something like that and that's the radical and you're like, yes, let's do it. I'm going to speak my truth and I'm going to do all these things. And then you get back to your daily life and the kids need feeding and you have to get to school and work and you're like, oh, oh, where's that rally cry gone? And like I alluded to earlier, it's like, I believe it's in the moment to moment mundane stuff where we create change and magic. And so your latest book, The Kitchen Witch, allows you every single day to create that magic, to create that change in your life, in your family, in like building up your power, your resilience to know that you can make that change. And then suddenly you're the burning woman. Mm. You know, moment to moment, choice to choice. I always say to people, if you can't do anything, when you make your morning so British, cup of tea, um, <laughs> I'm sure you're a tea lover too, though. Um, or you no know, coffee, or actually mine's mine's a nettle tea. I always drink my nettle tea in the morning, or you have your morning drink. It's like just by choosing your drink and stirring it. It's like you can stir your intention into being. So even if you're like gulping your coffee, tea, water, whatever it is you're having out of the day, if you just stir it, like if you're having a, like tea or coffee with your spoon or water with your finger and just be like, oh, I'm like adding intention today. And then you start your day. I'm like, that's how we start reclaiming our power to know that actually we have more influence than the world would have us believe. And I love so many things that you say in the Kitchen Witch Companion, which you know is full of incredible recipes. But I think the the first part of the book, it's that recognition of reclaiming the power and magic that we have access to every single day. And I think one of the things that you were talking about earlier is really important when we think about food is that you were talking about um, the rape culture that we live in today. And one of the first things I think that we, that children are often taught, and I think hopefully times are changing, but um, is to ignore the signals of their own body. Mm -hmm. And it would be like, oh, I'm full. No, finish what's on your plate. And so instead of trusting your own body, you're going, oh, those signals must be wrong. I should finish everything on my plate. And whilst I understand that, you know, people don't want to waste food and all of those things, it is also a time when we first lose trust in our own body and the signals of our body. So I think coming back into relationship with the kitchen, coming back into relationship with food, where it's grown, how it's produced, how it's created, that communal aspect of food. And that's before you start looking at like the, the magic properties of herbs and spices and things like that. I think it's such a powerful place to begin. So tell me about your 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 hope, your kind of intention for creating the Kitchen Witch Companion? Because it's more than just food, isn't it? It's more than just tasty seasonal recipes. So much more. <laughs> it is about rediscovering the magic of that can be created in the kitchen, the potential for magic making that each of us has. And tapping into what we're hungry for. I, I want to just read you a little bit from it, which uh, Sarah and I wrote together because mm -hmm. it's co-authored with Sarah Robinson, who is very well known for her Yoga for Witches and the first in this series, The K Kitchen Witch. Um, and her thing is about um, 
folklore and fairy tale and how the the ancient kind of mixes in with the modern um whereas my thing is more about archetypes and mm. uh, and what people would consider probably more feminist concerns so it was really lovely to kind of find where they met together and she found this quote that I just it we built a whole chapter around it because I just found it so powerful a witch author Ray Bradbury Ray Bradbury once wrote is born out of the true hungers of her time yeah this for us is a profoundly insightful observation the idea of which feeds the needs of both a culture and an individual often in paradoxical ways as a representative of the mysterious and powerful feminine her power is both longed for and distrusted her wis- wisdom needed and feared her magic denied and desired we believe what we are hungry for in our time is meaning purpose connection and magic we are bloated by domestication and longing for the wild we have become disenchanted with the way things are hungry for more so we open the book i mean as you can see it's not just a recipe book because often people kind of way more yes <laughs> Often people kind of see, you know, it's called Recipes, Rituals and Reflections. They're like, oh, it's a whole recipe book. But no, the first half is theory. It's theory Mm -hmm. on the kitchen, which magic, making magic at home, what that means, what that can look like, Um, re-engaging with the wild, what that means, what that can look like. Um, And then we go into the practical ways that can be, which is nearly 50 recipes, but it's also many different rituals, uh, foraging, and reclaiming our stories around food, family, celebration, seasons, reclaiming our belonging connection to all of those things. Um, so, but the, the root of it all, as far as both Sarah and I are concerned, is this hunger, learning to trust your hunger mm. to feed yourself. So we say here at the roads of crossroads of hunger, fantasy, flickering old realities and a longing for enchantment, may we find the way. And that's very much what we're we're looking at. Most inner witches are starving and a hungry witch is a dangerous creature. <laughs> I love that. So let me ask you then, I've got, I have two questions for you. This one, I, I whenever I can, I always like to ask this one, but what does magic actually mean to you? Magic does mean many different things. Mm. Um, we have a whole section on what magic is because like magic can be something that is enchanting to us. So something, you know, kind of seeing steam rising off a pot, just like, you know, thinking of the steam, the the fog rising up in the morning as you're driving through the hills. That's magical to us because although we know what's happening, it's the blurring of normal reality into kind of something else, a kind of a, a, a half seen world, things that are kind of transformed some way. Um, so that is is an important part of it, that kind of liminality of something that 
touches a, a spark within us, not in our rational minds, the rational mind falls away and something awakens within that goes, oh, I that that's meaningful to me or that makes me remember something or a sense of belonging to something other than this daily world. There is a something which I would call our soul, which gets reawakened by these mm-hmm. things. And they're like little signals from an outer realm, which is not of the normal world, to our inner realm that resonates and awakens something within us. Um, I've Jumping forward to my next book, Crow Moon, that jumped out very much from or, or led on from a number of experiences I had, which were experiences in nature, in the real world, in my real life, which didn't seem real. They just like I had to take photographs of them to prove that they happened because it was like, this is incredible. The synchronicity of these events with what is going on in my inner life, the incredibleness of stepping into something happening in nature, which is just such a reflection of my inner world or stops me and takes my breath away and shifts something within and I I move into another kind of sphere of being, which I've learned to call magical and real both. And I, I have, I keep track of them on my Instagram and I hashtag them that because very often when we talk about magic, it can be kind of like almost trying to retreat to an inner world that feels safer and lovelier and and more magical. And it feels like people can accuse you of running away from reality or dealing in things which aren't rational, aren't logical, and therefore kind of being childish in that sense, because it's not real, it's not true. And what I'm loving is seeing, marking, celebrating the magical and the real where they, the crossroads of the two of them that appear in our lives constantly. But if you don't take notice, if you don't pay attention, if you don't stop to wonder and marvel, if you don't allow yourself to be transformed by them, well then, yeah, there is no magic in the world. Yeah. It's (laughs) so fascinating. It's like my later, like I say, I'm on a bit of a journal spree at the moment and my the next journal that's coming out next month is called Magical Moments. And it is exactly what you've just said. It's a whole journal dedicated to marking those moments. Because when you, it's like whether you're doing gratitude journaling or whether you're just marking anything, the more you mark it, the more you notice it. You have a book on like cycle charting, don't you? And it's like when we pay attention and note down, it's like we notice the patterns and that's where the magic is. And it's it's interesting, isn't it? It's like we can very much dismiss magic or witches to fairy tales oh it's you know it's fanciful it's retreating but for me the magic is rooted it's grounded for me it's a very much earth-based practice where it's like a friend of mine she was um, she has a business and it's, it's just like this is how different we are we love each other and so different she was going to have a photo shoot like painted in gold and that that was like an absolute reflection of her and I was like oh if I did a photo shoot like that I'd be with twigs in the hair and mud over my face you know (laughs) with muddy boots in fact um I had a podcast um it didn't actually get off the ground because the person I was gonna do it with it didn't quite work out but we were gonna call it muddy priestesses because Mm -hmm. you know it is about the real and raw 
tangible. It's like the magic is there if we'll just pay attention. In fact, in your book, when you talk about magic, you, I mean, I can't remember the exact phrase, but it had said something like that science can't prove or something like that. And I just wanted to put yet in brackets. Oh, totally. <laughs> and it's like, they'll catch up. You know, they have been kept. And I think because I've been in this kind of world for so long, when I, I practice a therapy called kinesiology, and when I started 25 years ago, I was noticing that actually a lot of people's physical symptoms were to do with their emotional well-being, but it was completely dismissed by doctors at the time. It's like, oh, no, no, no. And then something called psychoimmunology started becoming more popular. And now everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, of course your emotions are affecting your body. And it's just like, wow, finally, it's take, you know, it, you just watch it, science and everything catch well catch up in certain areas, don't you? So the world yeah. is not rational and logical, much as patriarchy would like to have us believe. People it. aren't. We <laughs> want to understand how the vast majority of it works, and yet we pretend that we do. So, mm. in order to dismiss what we would be referring to here as the magical, you're having to dismiss an awful lot of reality. I'm interested in looking at the entirety of reality, yeah. not just the bits that I can explain. It's like logic and intuition, isn't it? It's like logic and discernment are really important. We need to be able to like um, go through so much information and work out what feels right, what doesn't. But also, if we dismiss, if we only focus on logic and reason we miss out on the majority of the information available to us because yeah. we were intuitive creatures before we were logical creatures. And that part of us is so much bigger. Well, and- what I'm interested in is evidence. Mm. And evidence is not just a scientific formula. Evidence is what is happening all around me right now. You know, it is what the birds are doing out there. And there might be various reasons for what the birds are doing out there. One of them might be the scientific theory of what they do in September because it's that. But that's only one bit of birds that we currently understand with the scientific method. And I'm not dissing science because, one, I married a scientist, and two, I'm really interested in science as a way of knowing. Absolutely, and it's vital and it's crucial, but it is not the only way of knowing. Yeah, science is a verb rather than science as a noun. Um, And it goes back to that burning woman archetype, doesn't it? It's like your truth. It's like when you see the birds, what's going on in your life? And I, it's why I had some of your authors on because I'm absolutely love seasons and cycles because mm. I think we learn so much about ourselves, how we relate to the world. But even just following the seasons, it's like, oh, the berries are out a bit early this year, and you're like, oh, what does that mean? And it it connects you into something that would be ancient. And it's like, oh, the berries are out. It's going to be a harsh winter. Better get gathering. You know, <laughs> it's just like it. It's that connection to i think when we notice how the land around us changes it creates a real like sense of place within us because we we feel connected we are not separate Mm. to it i mean the big fucking myth of patriarchy is that we are not of the natural world we are something entirely separate well i'm sorry guys but that is just not true on every Every single level of our bodies and our beings, we are integrated with what we're eating, what we're drinking, what Mm -hmm. we're breathing, what we're seeing. Like it is all part of us and we are part of it. That's not some spiritual woo woo stuff. That is reality. And so we're living in this kind of strange story that denies that reality. 
and that's how we've got where we've got um so all this I'm collection, for us lonely, to do, unfulfilled, uh, frustrated, you know, all of those things. Sick. Yeah. Always sick. Always sick. Mm. And burning out and not, you know, facing at looking at a future where we don't, we can't sustain the life we have and a climate that's going completely out of control because of our actions. Like we don't need it any more clear than that, but apparently no, still that that doesn't make sense to logic or rational, you know? So I just, for me, what I've learned in my path so far is, is the, the story of both and because we're, we're taught very much in dichotomies. Things are black and white in, in Western thought. Things are good or bad. Things are this or that. And both and is a much more valuable way to move forward because you consider all the evidence and then you consider more. And it can be both things and it isn't just one thing or the other. Um, it's a, it's a kind of a, a handy way to navigate. And I think that that's so true, isn't it? It's like, even if you look at schooling systems, it's like you're taught what to, you're told what to believe and you're told this is the way to do it rather than what you're saying is actually what's real for you. You know, it's like, yes, of course, have have that knowledge, but then ask, is this true? Mm -hmm. Does that work for me? These things I'm being told. I always remember um, I grew up in a, a small fishing village uh, in Cornwall. And I, one of my summer jobs is I worked at this small fishing village. And, you know, my version of history at the age of like 16 had been like Sir Francis Drake was this hero that travelled the world and brought back lots of good stuff for the UK um, or for the empire, whatever. And I, I worked in a French restaurant and he was like, you're Sir Francis Drake, he's a pirate. And I was like, Oh my God, I'd never even at that age been taught to have a look at how other countries might consider someone that we had been told was a, you know, at that time, like a hero. And ever since then, I was like, wow. And obviously that's, that's, I mean, that's so obvious, but it's not what I was taught at school, but you know, but for this French guy, he's like, oh, he's a pirate. And I was like, oh yes. What else have I been told that isn't true? But you you only know what you know, don't you? Until you start questioning, and I think yeah. the both and allows us room to question and yeah. go. Actually, add. is that true? Add yeah. complexity because yeah. very often what we take for education in our culture is simplifying things down to the easiest possible. Um, you know, one, two, three points. Let's and get you through an exam. Yeah. Reality isn't that. Reality is complex and paradoxical. paradoxical and yeah. if we don't have all of the pieces of information, then our view can only be partial and therefore our action can't be fully informed. And we have to take responsibility to go and find that information because the systems that be aren't going to give it to us. No. <laughs> it's like, and which is why we have people like you writing those books to go, <laughs> oh, this is where I can gain that information just to broader my view and it's like one of the things that I believe like to have a magical life one of the the core things is about it's like curiosity awe and wonder Mm. it's like we have to remain curious and my little boy he's only nine and he'll be like I know mummy and even at nine I'm like babes I know are two of the most dangerous words in the world. It's like, you don't know. <laughs> you think you do, but let's have a look what else is available. You know, and it would be something like really silly what he's saying, but I'm like, but we teach that, don't we? It's like, as soon as we say, oh yeah, I know. It's like everything is shut down, everything. And it's like, 
both and. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I know this and there's likely to be more information available to me. I know this and what else can be true at the same time. And it's how we've been taught. We've mm. we've been taught to identify with the ego, with the self that believes that it has complete control and complete understanding. And our knowledge about the world makes us safe in some way because we understand what's going on around us and then we can control it. And so, you know, this journey is about kind of relieving the ego of that pressure and saying, well, actually, you don't. (laughs) Actually, the world is a beautifully complex place that has been, you know, going on for millions of years before you got here. And, you know, you can still find a feeling of safety and control that you need in other ways. But if you insist on this thing that you know in your head being the one and only truth of all time, you know, that's that's going to get tricky. <laughs> it's just amazing, isn't it? When I first started practicing kinesiology, I, like I say, it's a long, long time ago. I was like, oh my God, I know everything. I'm going to save the world. It's like, and then as the more I kind of walked my path, I was like, oh, I know nothing. And I like sit here today at 45 going, I know absolutely nothing. Um, you know, I know a lot about the stuff I do know about, but in compared to what's available, it's like, I know nothing. <laughs> and I'm not even going to be able to read all the books I want to read in my lifetime. And uh, I think it's kind of humbling and, very empowering to go oh it's okay I don't have to know everything as long as I'm like super good at what I do and open both and it's like you can still be incredibly good and know nothing at the same time (laughs) it's it's a part of the process Mm. is is learning our own limitations because you know when we're small that's that's very scary you know everybody in the world seems to be a fixed person and we need Mm. to be a fixed person and you know, in order to feel safe going out into the world, we have to feel like we know what we're doing. We have to feel like we know that we're an expert in what we're doing, because otherwise, like, how would you even interact with anyone if you were just this constant kind of cauldron of self-doubt and vulnerability in a world that insists on no vulnerability, then you couldn't function in our culture. So in order to function in our culture, you have to build up a degree of resilience and um self-belief and sense of um trust in your own knowledge and your own ego in order to play a part in our world because that is what our western culture needs for you to do to function in our culture and then there comes a time when you start to question that culture and then there comes a time when when you question that culture you realize then hang on a second, all those things that I've been trying to be and not been very good at or whatever, maybe they're not real either. And so what lies beneath and what lies beneath? And so you go on this wonderful, down this rabbit hole of rediscovery of what everything is, you know, who am I? What is the world? What is the stories we've been telling? What's true? And and holding it up to the light and kind of, you know, just just adding the complexity, adding the both and because suddenly you realize that those stories that you were told about the world, the stories that you've been telling about yourself aren't actually very true. And I think that both and, just writing it down here, (laughs) make sure it goes in the show notes, um, both and is almost like a life buoy in that sea of 
dissolution as you go. I call it caterpillar soup. It's like when you start learning that, oh my gosh, there's so much more to the world or what I what I have been striving for actually isn't true for me. There can be anger, frustration. And it's like, we're no longer the caterpillar, but we're not quite the butterfly yet because we're having to unlearn and relearn all of those things. And we're just in that mess of like, holy broomsticks, what's going on? And it's like that both and. It's like, oh yes, both and. This is like that thing to hang on to. But something you said then, which I think is really important, it's very much about that energy of trust like trusting ourselves, trusting our desires, trusting our hunger, um, trusting our desires and longings to refer back to one of your other publishers, um, one of your other authors, sorry. How did you develop trust in yourself? Because when we have been told what we should be doing by all of the things around us, it can, well, we even started talking about hunger and it's like, finish your food. Oh, but I'm full. No, finish what's on your plate. And we ignore that hunger. We stop trusting the signals of our body. We stop trusting our own longing and desire. We make ourselves wrong when we don't fit like air quotes, normal narrative of whatever society we find ourselves in. How did you kind of like silence those noise, give yourself the breathing space and come back to trusting yourself? It's a constant ongoing process. Again, it's, it's not a one and done thing. It's not a attend this workshop you know read this book and suddenly you that'd you, be nice wouldn't it <laughs> just an <well>. afternoon <laughs> but I mean, that, that is what life is mm. like there is no butterfly in that sense you're always caterpillar soup mm. um sorry to bring you to- <laughs> <laughs> we go through many morphs of butterflies changing from time to time <laughs> but um you know there is no happily ever after there is no do this and then you're done well, unless you want to be stuck in in an illusion, I guess, because, you know, we are constantly changing. The world around us is constantly changing. The people we surround ourselves with are constantly changing. So how can we always be the same? Um, people will try. <laughs> so, I mean, the thing that I I really want to kind of just highlight is that when we experience this kind of like, oh shit, the world isn't what I thought it was, or I'm not who I thought I was. We can often kind of um, become the victim and uh, or feel very alone in it and tell ourselves that we're the only one experiencing this. And that is the greatest lie that patriarchy um, really Mm. spreads around anybody who questions it, that there's something wrong with you. You're the problem because patriarchy makes sense. And so the second that you wake up from that, whether it's around yourself or around the culture that you live in, there is that feeling of aloneness. And I think the biggest mission I have with Womancraft is to say you are not alone. There are lots of us waking up questioning things that we thought were true about ourselves and about what it is to be a woman in the world that are looking for other narratives, that are looking for older wisdoms, that are looking for other ways of being, other ways of doing things that have been silenced and shut down, and that you are not alone. You are one of an unseen community of millions who are doing this very work alongside you, even though you don't know that yet. And so that feeling of aloneness is the thing that keeps us trapped and small. Whereas the second that we have a sense of belonging to community, then our energy can move outwards. Then it can be more expansive. Um, Then we can be creative. Then we can feel safe. Then we can create sisterhood. But until we have 
some degree of sense of not being alone, we we turn our energy against ourselves. And so for me, that that has been the learning is just um, and I have it when I write most books, I get to a point where I can't write the book anymore. It's not working. You know, I had this this thing came through me, this this title came through me, this image, this idea came through me. I started going with it. Then I started it making making it what I thought it needed to be, what I wanted it to be, what felt safe to me. And suddenly it stops You're and like, I can't do it. And I'm stuck <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, oh, fuck. I've told people this book's coming and it's dead. I can't do it. And the thing that always, always changes it for me is remembering that it's not just me. So mm. I reach out to community and I say, how is this topic for you? How is it real and true for you? Share your stories with me. And it's in that reaching out to community, that inviting in of other voices, that I'm like, it's not just me in this topic. The reason I'm writing it is because way back when I knew it resonated with lots of people. That's why I wrote about it. So I'm not alone. There is a community there and I can invite them in to share their different experiences. Some will reflect mine, some won't, but I'm not alone in this. And that's very much, you know, one of the the lovely things about my books is whilst they center my voice and my experience, they center my research. I invite in a group of women, people of other genders to share their experience of what this thing is too because my experience isn't the only experience it's not the only truth i can only it's only partial it only ever can be so we need both and we need mm. my voice and all the others and so, breaking the silence on the topic yes you know, so that like we calling have that in. lived experience of what this means what this could could look like what it does look like what our stories from the past via our mothers and our grandmothers have been and how we're working it in the world. And so that people who might not resonate fully with my experience, for example, if they don't have kids, they're like, well, what she's saying about isn't true for me. But the second they read a story from somebody who doesn't have kids, and this is how it is for them, it's like, boom, there we go. So so the circle of women, the circle of others who we can find belonging with is just at the heart of all of my work personal work and collective work because the second we know we're not alone then magic happens mm. yeah that shared experience and it it really does speak to like the testament of stories doesn't it I, I was writing the other day and it was like you know we are creatives and storytellers although you know they're pretty much the same thing and I've, I've read a lot that says you know we're human because of our ability to share stories we share stories to connect like you were sharing like you were saying then it's like we share share stories to teach to warn to inspire it's like we are just such natural storytellers but unfortunately with that comes the story that I'm alone or everyone else is right. But when we can get those stories of connection, it's like the whole world changes. And I think one of the things about your your style of writing or your books is that no matter, you know, obviously when people have been drawn to a book for a reason, but you are a different person by the time you've read it because of that energy of like connection or feeling less alone or breaking the silence and putting words to something that people are feeling they are you know they are very transformative 
books with the you know the ones that I've read of yours anyway and I suspect Crow Moon will be exactly the same (laughs) is I mean so each time I set myself a challenge I try to do something I've never done before otherwise Mm. you know writing books would get boring (laughs) so especially um, one a year (laughs) so so I set myself two challenges on this one was to say yes to my images, to follow the images, the image making process, and to center that in the book. So, so the images you have created. Yes. Oh, fantastic. There's yeah. about 45, 50 images in it. And they they were the backbone of what the book is about. So I had an idea of what I wanted the book to be about, which was um so to me, the crow moon was walking into the woods uh, as it was getting dark. And suddenly the sky just became alive with what I called crows, which are actually rooks. In the US, they are crows, but um, they're crow family and um, all coming in from all different directions. And it felt like I was underwater, like in a kind of Mm. under a glass bottom boat looking up and like thousands of crows about 10,000 crows, rooks, all coming in from different directions, dancing around with each other, calling to each other, dissipating, going away from each other, coming back. It wasn't like a murmuration of starlings, which is Mm. all moving together very beautifully. Instead, this was groups that had been all around the county for the day, coming together, communicating and coming apart and each of them flying in separately and it was it was a truly magical experience it was that thing of being very small and watching something so much bigger than me ancient that has been going on since the beginning of crowdom <laughs> i had never seen it and it was here like i was driving home it's it was in a town like and i was the only mm watching this like all these thousands of people that live in this town were completely ignoring this like thing that was happening and I just wonder yeah I just and then they just landed in the trees silence gone done and in a matter of about seven minutes it went from empty sky nothing empty sky nothing and it was like the air was thick with birds it, it was, you can hear in my voice, it was an extraordinary experience. Mm. So I wanted to explore what that was. So that was my starting point. But there was another starting point, which was a drawing that came through me. I'd been to a procession again, just as dusk was falling into the woods at Halloween. And it was a drumming procession led by drummers, all with masks on. And we all had lanterns and the crows were coming in then as well. And it was this feeling that those two things awoke in me. There's something and I didn't know what this was. And when I went to bed that night, I couldn't go to sleep because I was so high on whatever this experience was. And this image just came through me like that. And I was like, whoa, that is not my normal style of drawing. That is not what I normally draw. What is this? So the book follows me saying, what is this to these drawings? Like, where do we go next? You know, constantly following the drawings um, again and again. And they took me into places I didn't want to go. 
like automatic drawing and um, dream association are things that, you know, the very early psychoanalysts, um, especially Jung, uh, who who I am very fascinated by his work, and he features a lot in this book. Um, it's really how they delved into the unconscious mind. So this, mm. this is a delve into my unconscious mind at a, at a time of deep initiation. And the other challenge I set myself, so not only was it rather than just being a word-based book, which is what I'm known for, that this was an image-based book which then the words came out of, then the journey came out of, which took me into scary places. But not only that actual initiation that happened, I was going to try, <laughs> the ego is wonderful, isn't it? I was going to try <laughs> to recreate the experience of initiation for the reader. Now, I've tried that in, uh -oh. in my other books in ways the ways that I structure them mm -hmm. so that the ways that I give you exercises to help to um awaken those bits of initiation um but I've never tried to actually recreate the initiatory experience and with the hope that it will do it for you too I've never been that bold and this was like okay that's what I'm going to do. I am going to try to put within the covers of a book what an initiation is in order that it can have that impact on the reader. Only readers will be able to tell me if it's successful, but that was my intention. I was about to say, do you think you have been successful if you had to feel into it and trust? What I can tell you is that, so my books go out to lots of early readers, mm -hmm. feedback and for endorsement. Um, and the two are slightly different. You know, someone reading for feedback is slightly different to someone reading for endorsement. And what I noticed was that the women who had their expectations that this was going to be like Burning Woman or She of the Sea um, and who didn't have much time for it, who just kind of, you know, had to Scoot go through it quickly, it. Yeah. didn't get it. And they they knew they didn't get it because they said, I need to go back more slowly through it. And the women who gave it time, because I hadn't told them it was supposed to be an initiation. Mm. Like, that was an initiation, Lucy. That, <laughs> so, you know, it's what you're prepared to invest yeah. into it, is um, how, how deep you're prepared to go with it. Because you can take it on many levels. On one level, it's a book of stories and um, images of crows and an archetype, a woman's archetype that comes up. Um, and and that can be powerful enough if, if crows are meaningful to you in your life and they emerge regularly and you feel like they're symbolically something to you, this will give you far more of that. And that's fine. If you're prepared to go into the deep, dark woods being the unconscious and use this as a catalyst for your own adventure then, you know, you've got some exciting and scary time ahead. <laughs> no, exciting. <laughs> yeah, I love the subtitle, uh, Reclaiming the Wisdom of the Dark Woods. And it's like, yes, there's that energy of like that darkness again, that that reclamation of all the things that we've been told are scary. Um, well, the to dark go, Actually, that's where the, the power and the wisdom often lies. The dark woods in... Um, psychology and um, is is 
the unconscious mind. That mm. is what it's represented in art and literature and then psychoanalysis. You know, I've got a quote from Dante in there, you know, kind of centuries ago and and onwards and onwards. It's same with fairy tales. When we want transformation to happen, when we want to reach into the unknown, we set it in the dark woods because the dark woods is the deep unknown outside of us and inside of us. Exciting stuff. Uh, yes. So we can nourish ourselves, get us ready for the initiation of the dark woods. <laughs> two very, very different books. Like I loved writing The Kitchen Witch Companion because I had Sarah to do it with. And yeah. so every time um, I didn't know how to do something or I didn't know what to do, she could do it. And anytime she couldn't do something, I could do it. And I was never alone in that process. And then we had these 12 other women who we called in. Who, to bring their experience and their expertise. So we've got a foraging expert, we've got a fermenting expert, we've got somebody mm. who's an expert in simmer pots. Um, so we've got lots of different perspectives there too. Um, whereas, you know... But it's still the energy of transformation though, isn't it? Absolutely. It's like kitchen is like the ultimate alchemy. But of, it's deep, deep yeah. um, psychological... It's it's working on a different part of us. So it was it was a lovely nourishing both book. and both and <laughs> so I'm saying you can we can nourish ourselves fill ourselves up with um, all of the great magic and nourishment of kitchens ready to prepare us for the journey into the dark wood I think that works beautifully together and I illustrated both <laughs> as well like you'll see um, oh did you so you'll see very different sorts of illustration um, yeah and. Yeah, and then I illustrated um, Alice Grist, who you've had on her next yep. book, Soulful Pregnancy, which is out in June. Again, you'll see a very different style. So what Crow Moon really awakened for me was saying yes to the images and allowing images to be very much part of the the, the journey, the expression, the the understanding of content um, rather than just having to be word-based. And that's been really nourishing for me. Um, and it's a part that I'd kind of cut off and put to one side, you know, separated my artist and my writer self. Yeah. And actually, this has been an integration of both that just feels wonderful. It, it feels very much like a reclaiming of that deep inner power, you know, yeah. where the other books have been about expression, you know, but this is like the depths yeah. <laughs> of going in. So tell us, when are these books going to be available? Where, when can people pre-order? How do they find out more? Okay, so The Kitchen Witch Companion is on pre-order now. And the books will ship uh, mid-October. And then they are available everywhere um, from the 3rd of November. So pre-ordering is something that you do on womancraftpublishing.com. And what it means is you buy the book in advance. We, in our gratitude give you stuff for that. So you get your signed copy, every copy is signed with a dedicated bookmark that we only do a, a limited print run of. So once those bookmarks are gone, they're gone. Um, and then we always offer digital goodies that you can't get anywhere else. So um, for the Kitchen Witch Companion, there is going to be a book club with myself and Sarah and some of the other contributors so that we can um, read from it, discuss it. You can ask us questions. Um, and then there are also the recordings of all of the meditations in it that Sarah wrote. There are the audio recordings of those. Uh, Crow Moon launches for pre-order on Womancraft Publishing on the 1st of December. 
And then it launches everywhere in the world on the 1st of March. So pre-ordered copies will be shipped out a couple of weeks before launch date so that everyone should have their copies with them by the time it goes out into the world. So exciting. Oh, I'm looking forward to the Chrome one. It's a square book. You know, it's like I've just been, I just got the proof copy through um, this week and showing it on social media and everyone's like, oh, it's a square book. And I've forgotten that people didn't know that. So again, it's just marking itself out as slightly different to my other books. Yeah. So where can people find more about you? Um, LucyHPierce.com is my uh, website. And you can find out about my books, a bit more about my backstory, events that are coming up. You can listen to lots of podcast interviews um, and join the mailing list to um, find out about. I, I do lots of online teaching nowadays, um, which I love, love, love. Another kind of string to my bow was I trained to be a teacher and then put that aside because of anxiety. So I'm back teaching um, drawing at the moment I saw uh, that on your Instagram it's all about mm-hmm. art right now isn't it yeah uh, yeah really powerful. beautiful mm. and and on on Instagram is my favorite social media so Lucy H Pierce on there as well and all of that will be on the show notes I do have one final question for you um if you would recommend this might be really hard but if you would recommend one recipe from the kitchen witch companion which one would has been your favorite or which one are you like oh I'm gonna try that one myself Oh, Lord, that's a good I know, that's a bit mean, isn't it? It's like, oh, it's like almost as bad as asking if you have a favourite child, which, of course, of course, the answer would always be no. Um, But I was like, I was was flicking through myself going, oh, some of these look so delicious. And I was like, oh, I was wondering whether there's one that stood out for you as being that's the one that you either wanted to try that's next on your list or a personal favourite of yours. A bit Um, mean because I haven't asked you in advance. She's like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, it's like choosing a favorite child because each one have a different purpose and a different memory mm-hmm. and this, that, and the other. And not all of them are my recipes. They're recipes yeah. for all of us who contributed, although I did do the majority of the recipes. Oh, okay. Um, so for me, this being the season, it's fig and hazelnut cake, the last of the figs on the trees. Ooh. And um and you can do um, it with all sorts of different uh, fruits. But it's basically, it was a River Cafe recipe that I've done and loved for many years. But my husband is celiac, so I had to make it gluten-free. And um, I, it was a plum and almond cake when it started out with them. And so <laughs> I tried many different fruits. So I do it throughout the seasons. And if you want a good gluten-free cake recipe that's about as good as it gets so um so yeah (laughs) fantastic I do love a fig brilliant thank you thank you for uh sharing your recipes but also for everything that you've shared today it's been I've, I've loved chatting with you and in hearing the evolution of your stories of the archetypes of everything that you've shared and just thank you for the incredible work that you put out into the world thank you so much